you turn tonight as we finish up chapter 11 here in the book of Romans, now we are about to finish what is the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. So chapter 11 is really the conclusion of that section. We're going to go on to the applicational section. In other words, where Paul really kind of speaks to the body of Christ and says, this is what you need to do with what we've learned in these first 11 chapters. But as he concludes, he concludes with a thought that should be on the forefront of every believer's mind, every believer's heart, every person in the world who knows the Lord ought to remember, if you don't remember much of anything else that I say tonight, remember that everything is about him. It's all about the Lord. It is about God. It is about Jesus Christ, his son. Everything that we are, all that we do, everything we will ever be as believers, our focus is now and always and forever will be the Lord God, Jesus Christ, his son. And so Paul is going to begin to prove the very nature uh, of the sovereignty of God and his plans for mankind. Now, how many of you have ever thought God may have misplaced you? It's okay, you can raise your hand. I, I, you know, there's been times in my life, it's kind of like, well, Lord, where, where are you right now? Did you kind of forget where I was at? Because I'm over here and I don't see you anywhere. If you're at all honest, I think there's probably not a Christian who's ever lived that hasn't had a thought similar to that. It's like maybe you're going through a deep trial. Maybe you're going through uh, some time in your life where you're just not sure in your faith. Maybe you're struggling to even believe. Perhaps you've reached a place in your time it's like, well, God seems to be at work in other people's lives, but it doesn't seem like he's at work in my life. Those are the times when you need to remember the truth of this passage. God is sovereign, and God is at work, and he cannot be thwarted. He alone is God, and everything that is, is because of him. It is for him, it is by him, it is through him, and he will finish that work that he has begun in you. And because that is true for us as believers, it is also true for the promises that he made to his children, to his elected ones, Israel. And so Paul's going to give us this conclusion uh, of this time where we've been talking about national Israel and the salvation that is yet to come. And it culminates as we pick up the remaining part of this chapter, verse 25 to verse 36. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you tonight that all of the things that you have ever said will come true. No power on earth, no government, no government official, not our president, not the secretary of state, not the mullahs in Iran, not the leaders of ISIS, not Kim Jong-un, Lord, no one is more powerful than you. All that you have ever said will come to pass. And so, Father, we believe that you're a God of grace and mercy, and that mercy and that grace is still being poured out on this earth right now, this very moment. And, Lord, we live in that age of grace, and we ask, God, that your grace would fall upon us afresh and anew. We trust you for all things. And pray now that you would speak to us through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen. 
verse 25, Paul kind of saves the very best for last here in this, in this thought, if you will, uh, about what it is that Israel has in its future. And as such, is a reminder to you and a reminder to me of the truth of our lives as well. Though Israel is Israel and the Gentile church is the Gentile church and we are not to mix the two of those, there is a specific plan for Israel. But what God is really reminding us of as believers in Christ Jesus that have come to faith already is that he's got it. He really has a plan and that plan is going to come to fruition. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And so he says, look, this is a mystery. This is not going to be easily understood. This is going to be something you're going to need to use your mind a little bit. The very thing that the prophet Isaiah uh, was reminded of and his reasoning with God, he said, come, let us reason together. Let's think about this. But we may not be able to come to a total conclusion about everything that God's trying to get uh, through our little thick heads. Anybody else in here have a thick head? I had a thick head every once in a while. I have certain things that I lay hold of pretty clearly and concisely with regard to the Word of God. And I have other things, like forgiving my enemies. Just being honest, don't you have a few things that Scripture clearly says you must do? And by the way, it is a command to forgive your enemies. I hate to tell you this, in case you don't like doing that. But you have been commanded to forgive your enemies. You have been commanded to be gracious and hospitable. You've been commanded to be merciful. So there are a lot of things that God tells us, and then we're like, man, I don't know how to do that. What do I do with that truth? This is one of those truths. We may not quite understand it. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel, and then he gives us a clue as to the timing of when that blindness would end. And we've looked at this. We've discussed this in fairly great detail when we were in the book of Revelation not long ago. That blindness in part, and notice it's in part, not in totality, not in full. There are, there are Jewish believers all over the world. We have some here tonight with us. Those who, by heritage, are of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet at the same time recipients of God's amazing grace. Completed Jewish people is the way I like to look at it. They have the best of both worlds children of the covenant, and also children of grace. But that blindness is in part. It is not total, and God has not forsaken national Israel. And so he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is a time, and I believe we are in the, the very waning uh, hours, if you will, on the clock of God's age of grace, where he's poured out grace into this world and he's done so reaching out to the Gentile nations of the earth. The gospel has gone forth and that time, scripture declares, is the time of the Gentiles. 
The gospel was designed by God to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile because it was rejected by the Jewish people. That blindness comes upon them. Notice it repeats that understanding here and then says, but that blindness is not total, it's part, and there is a limit to the time that that blindness will exist and it will come about when the times of the Gentiles are done. What does that mean? What does that look like? We're going to look at that. And then it says, verse 26, underline it, if you have anyone in your life who is Jewish and you're wondering if there's any way that the, the Lord is going to be able to break through that, that toughness, that exterior, that hard heart that exists at times, Uh, that has plagued the Jewish people so much so that God himself calls them stubborn and stiff-necked. That's what God said. That's not what Jeff says. Because I can be just as stubborn, just as hard-headed, and just as stiff-necked. But from God's perspective, nationally, the Jewish people, because of all the things that God has done for them over the centuries, over the millennia, ought to have soft hearts. That's why the prophet Jeremiah clearly said that one day those hearts of stone are going to be replaced with hearts of flesh. That day's coming. And I do not believe that it's on uh, the distant horizon anymore. We simply look around at our world and what's going on. It is report after report after report about what is going on in the Middle East. Well, what, what will happen next might be the question. It's like every morning I, I look, I do this. I turn on my cell phone, I scroll over to my news app, and I'm waiting to see that once again war is broken out in the Middle East. Because the prophet Ezekiel said there is going to come a point in time when when the Middle East will be the center, will be the focus of the very last days. And I believe that time is drawing close. And it says in verse 26, And so, so what you might ask, the blindness is in part, but only until the times of the Gentiles have come in, and at that time, and so, all Israel will be saved Exactly, purposefully, willfully, directly, as it is written. Those words may not be translated there in our Bibles, but they're implicit within the text. In other words, this is a foregone conclusion by the hand of God himself. It will come to pass. All Israel, one day, when the blindness ends and the times of the Gentiles have come in, all Israel will be saved. That's God's word to the church. This was written to believers, Roman Christians. And so he goes on to quote, first from the book of Isaiah, the deliverer will will come out of Zion. He will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. Remember what Jacob's name means. It means deceiver. It means heel catcher. He would get a new name. His name would be Israel, governed by God. He would go from being a deceiver to being governed by God. For this is my covenant with them. Now this is written in the New Testament. This is not the Old Testament. And the the covenant is being repeated. It's being spoken. When I take away their sins, 
in what fashion or form can anyone's sins be taken away? It is by believing on the only begotten Son of God. It is confessing our sins, and he, that he is Jesus, as 1 John 1, 9 says, is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. So this is talking about salvation in Christ Jesus. That has not yet happened. As a nation, individual Jews since the time of Christ have, becoming, have become Christians. The early church was largely Jewish believers. But as a nation, as a people, as a whole, this time is still yet future. It was distant future when these words were written. It may be just over the horizon as we stand here tonight. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. The Jewish people, because of the rejection of Messiah, became, in essence, enemies of God to a degree, but only to a degree. But them being enemies has been for the good of the times of the Gentiles. Because that rejection has drawn you and I to this place tonight. Us as New Testament believers to faith in Christ and grace. So what was not good for the Jewish people has been very good for the Gentiles. But God has not been unfair towards the Jewish people. Because to as many as received him to them, he gave the ability to become the sons, the daughters of God. Any Jew who has ever wanted to walk by faith and not by sight has been able to do so. But just as there are nations today that are largely Christian, there are also nations that are largely unchristian in many different forms. So before we put too much of a finger on the Jewish people about that, we could also look at the Chinese, we could look at the Japanese, we could look at the Koreans, we could look around the globe, sub-Saharan Africa, and you're going to find mostly unsaved people. India. Nearly a quarter of the world's population and 90 plus percent Hindu. I don't believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the same exact blindness, though spoken of to national Israel, has existed in all of humanity. Because until that light goes on, until grace is revealed, until we hear the word of God, till we have an understanding of the gospel, no one can be saved. Israel is being primed for the gospel right now, tonight. It's amazing what the Lord is doing. We have a team actually from Costa Mesa there from the School of Worship that's been sharing the gospel, been doing concerts. They had over 5,000 people show up to a Christian concert in Tel Aviv. That's crazy. That would not have happened even 10 years ago. And so he goes on. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God hasn't forsaken his promises. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't make promises and then go, ah, you know, sorry. For as you were once disobedient to God and yet have, now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, 
Look, you and I were nothing special either, amen? I'm pretty sure I was disobedient and rebellious before I met Jesus. So we need to be really careful about how much finger pointing we do because very often most of those fingers are pointed right back at us. I don't deserve the grace of God. I don't deserve the mercy of God. I don't deserve to believe by faith, and yet I have. And so what I have myself, I, I should always want for others. Every ethnos. We've obtained mercy through their disobedience. And even those who have now been disobedient, that through mercy shown to you, they may obtain mercy. In other words, there's a jealousness that happens when people see us walking with Jesus. I got a beautiful email yesterday. And it was from a person who admittedly was an atheist. And they came to church last Sunday, and they were actually jealous because you all seemed like you were having a good time, and they could not understand that. They were jealous because of what we have. Praise the Lord. They should be jealous. They ought to see us living life and that abundant life that we have in Christ and be very jealous of what we have. It should make people crazy to see us. Crazy for what we have in Christ Jesus as our Lord. It's the principle that's in play here. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. In other words, he's he's saying there's a point to this disobedience, this this rebellion, this hard-heartedness. God hasn't forsaken. You, You see, when you make choices, God honors your choice. He honored your choices to walk in rebellion and sin. And while you may have done those things in a Christian environment, because we live in a Christian environment in this country, anyone that says that we do not largely have a Christian history is just ignorant of the history of the United States of America. This is a Christian nation. And it has been since its founding. Do we have non-Christians? Sure we do. Do we have people who are marginally Christian? Yes, We have people who claim to be Christians that aren't Christians. Yes, we have those two. But largely, we are a Christian nation. And it was until very recently that being in the military meant you got issued a Bible. That you met with a Christian chaplain. You see, Israel is about to experience that exact same thing. They are going to be largely Christian. Not true yet. Just over the horizon, though, I believe. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And how unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Have you ever thought about these types of questions? Job asked these questions. Jeremiah asked these questions. Paul's repeating these questions. You ever ask yourself, what would you have done? How would you have worked out the plan of salvation for all of mankind? What would you have done with your own chosen people? How would you have done it? Who has become his counselor? Or who has given to him? And it shall be repaid. You know, (laughs) 
God doesn't need anything you have. Because it's all his already. Amen? You see the point? He, he's, he's, he's trying to tell us, look, God's God. And I'm not. This church isn't. No pastor is, no person is. God's God. And everything is about him. And he closes, he says, for him and through him and to him are all things. This again is a repetition of the theme of Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. Everything belongs to God. In him, Scripture says, we live and have our being. Your very breath he holds in his hand. And whether we acknowledge him or not, whether we're stone-cold atheists and we worship at the throne of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, or, or, or whether we worship at the God of randomness and chaos, no matter where you worship, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's true tonight. And it's true for the Jewish people. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. There's eight things that I want to pull out of this text. They're short, they're sweet, but they're poignant and perfect. First one is, never forget, God's timing is perfect. Verse 25. What has happened to Israel is all part of God's plan. You see, we look at things like somehow mankind has been able to mess with God. We, we look at things from a non-sovereign perspective. But everything that has ever happened from God's perspective, he has always had under control. Otherwise, he's not sovereign. Otherwise, we should all go home. If God's not sovereign, then his sovereign grace isn't at work in our lives either tonight. So let's just all quit and go home. But I'm telling you, his sovereign grace is at work tonight. He does have it under control. And so his timing is perfect in everything. And so he has waited for 2,000 years, as we sit here tonight, for his plans to unfold as he's dealing with the entire world, the entire Gentile world. Every one of us, those times of Gentiles, were part of that Gentile age. Another way to look at it is the age of God's grace being poured out upon the Gentile world. God's timing is perfect. And here's the problem for us as humankind. We don't know when the end of that age of grace is coming. That's why we need to make sure that we have, in our own sense, put our own personal hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ the moment we understand the gospel. Because it might only last until another eight seconds. Somebody asked, once, me, once asked me, he says, well, you know, what happens if the Lord comes back and we're in church? Well, man, that is the way to end a church service. <laughs> it's like, hallelujah, praise God. I don't think, I'm pretty sure the worship team can't beat that. <laughs> we don't know. We have no idea when the Lord's going to come for his church, when that trumpet's going to sound, and we who are alive and remain medium in the air. We do not know when that's going to happen. That's why we're supposed to be eminently looking for the return of the Lord. 
Now, here's the one thing we do know. There's an awful lot of signs and an awful lot of seasons that have already come to pass that had not come to pass when these words were written. Most of them that are most pertinent to us are found in the book of Ezekiel. Israel has returned to the land. And that prophecy of Ezekiel said that once they have returned, they will never, ever again cease to be a people. There's also a burden that's been placed on Damascus that one day it's going to become a ruinous heap. Well, Damascus is still there. So that one we can kind of put in the background a little bit. But it's in Syria. It's not exactly a pleasant place to be tonight. They're also back in the land speaking one language. The valleys have bloomed. The roses of Sharon have grown. What was dead and brown is now green and beautiful. Those are all things that your Bible says are going to happen in the very last days. They've happened. 1948, April 14th, the Jewish people became a nation again. Your Bible says once that happens, they will never, ever, ever cease being a people. That means the clock started ticking. God's got a plan, His timing is perfect. That fullness is coming. This verse is another one of those until passages. Jesus was actually fairly famous for them himself. And they were always in relationship to the very last days. Matthew 24, verse 21 says, For there will be a great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. Nor shall it ever be again. Luke chapter 21, verse 20, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until, guess what, same phrase, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words, he's saying those until passages are until God is good and ready for the very last days. Might want to be looking up. Those until passages were able to be spoken of then. They're very well spoken of tonight. A second thing, don't ever forget that these are God's promises. It's God's promise. God has promised to save his people, the Jews. Look, if he promised to send a Messiah so that we could all be saved, he promised to send a deliverer, and he did that, because you're here tonight, if you're a Christian, you ought to be really happy about this. Because Jesus came and fulfilled exactly what Messiah would do, give his life a ransom for many, that by his stripes we would be healed who believe he did that. That's why we have assurance we're going to heaven. God promised to save the Jewish people. If he saved us, he's going to save them. Has to. Otherwise... He's not been faithful to his own word. And I want to strongly encourage you. Read Zechariah. It's just, it's, you got Malachi, then Zechariah. It's near the New Testament, barely in the Old Testament. 
But read the, the last three or four chapters and look for the phrase, in that day. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a sampling of it tonight. Because that day is coming. And that phrase, in that day, is referring to the tribulation. It's Revelation chapter 6 through 19. It's the time that Daniel called the 70th week. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. But in chapter 12, it says this, beginning in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. What one place is being fought over in the Middle East right now by not one, not two, but three major world religions, and they're all the only monotheistic ones, it's Jerusalem. Fighting over the... They arrested a young boy for kicking a soccer ball today on the Temple Mount. And then they will lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen that in that day, there's the first one, that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who will heave it away will surely be cut to pieces. In other words, anyone who messes with Jerusalem will be cut to pieces. Though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it, all the nations of the earth are gathered against Israel. Even their friends like we are. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion, its rider with madness. And it's speaking of open warfare. I'll open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. The governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength and the Lord of hosts their God. For in that day, again, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in a woodpile, like a fiery torch in the sheaves, and they shall devour all the surrounding peoples. And on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. You see the picture here? The whole world comes against them, but somehow Jerusalem miraculously survives. And the Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. For in that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God. And the angel of the Lord before them, and it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all of the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn him as the one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. That day is coming. It has not yet come. 
but that day is coming. Don't forget that it's God's promise and his timing is perfect. We must also not ever forget that this is God's covenant. God made a covenant with the Jewish people. He said perpetually forever they would be his people. Now he's either a liar or he's got to keep that covenant. I believe he's going to keep that covenant. He he made a promise. And he made that promise to, to Abraham. And so this quotation from Isaiah 59 is speaking of the Jewish people being uh, enemies of believing Gentiles and, and at odds with God. But there's a purpose to that. It's not to replace the covenant that God made with them. It's simply for a time. He's going to keep that covenant. You want to see that in action? Read the book of Joel. He's going to make good on that promise. Never forget, we, what we have here is God's nature at stake. God's very own nature, his character. God's gift to Israel, God's calling to Israel cannot be taken back. Otherwise, God is not fair. God is not just. God is not loving. God is not kind. God is unequitable. The, the number of things that would be true about God if God does not keep his covenant with Israel should make us tremble and wonder if there is any such thing as grace. Because no people have been persecuted like the Jewish people. He's going to keep his covenants with Israel. It's his nature to do so. As we've already seen, their, their unbelief shall make the faithfulness of God without effect. Of course it will not. Just like your unbelief doesn't negate the grace of God. We must also never forget it's God's integrity that's at stake. But God isn't punctual on our timetable, is he? Anybody figured that out in life yet? God doesn't call you up and ask you when you want things done. No, God works on his own timetable. So it's his integrity that's in, in, in absolute view here. That's why Malachi chapter 3, the last book, that little 400-year period that exists between Matthew and Malachi, that, that period when God didn't speak through a prophet, one of the very last things said to them, I am the Lord, I change not. You know why he was saying that? Because he's the Lord and he doesn't change. And what he says will stand. The writer of Hebrews said much the same thing in Hebrews 10. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised it is faithful. God's faithful. His promises are certain. They're sure. The power of his grace is at work in you right now. That's why we can say the deliverer will come out of Zion. There is zero doubt of that. You read the results of that passage. When you read those couple of chapters there in Zechariah, there's a day coming when the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming back. He's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. and It's going to split in two. But he's also going to come back to fight the nations of the earth and destroy them for what they have done to Israel for dividing up God's land. 
It's what the prophet Joel said. How they've treated the Jewish people, how the world has treated the Jewish people is going to actually be the trigger that will bring the Lord back from heaven. He's going to say enough. Those 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be preaching all over the world. The two witnesses will be standing on the Temple Mount. They're going to be slain and martyred. And God's going to say, enough. I'll take care of this myself. And he's going to send Jesus. Every form and every degree, God's word is immutable. His promises are unconditional, folks. I don't know how many of you have ever taken the time to read uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham, but it is an interesting read there. We'll get to it in our study in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15. But does anybody know what Abraham was doing when God made that covenant? He was sleeping. He was literally sleeping. Read Genesis chapter 15. God says, I want you to cut up a few animals. I want you to barbecue them. So God likes barbecue. He says, I want you to barbecue some animals. And I'm going to pass between the pieces and I'm going to make them holy. And while this whole thing is going on, Abraham has been put into a deep sleep. So Abraham is a beautiful picture of God's grace because there is nothing that Abraham did to receive that covenant. He was asleep. He received that covenant by grace and through faith, and the Lord's going to keep that covenant. It is unconditional to Israel. He didn't even have knowledge of the whole thing. God would later share with him what it was. He would give him some pieces of the promise. He said, I'm going to make your name great. Out of you will come a multitude of nations. And Abraham's going, have you seen my wife? I mean, we are O-L-D old. This ain't happening. Name our first kid laughter because it's a joke. And you want me to do you want me to do what? You remember what the result of that was? And God shall provide himself a sacrifice. It's all by grace and it's all unconditional. The story of the grace of God runs through the entire Bible. It's not just found in the New Testament. We have to never forget that it's God's grace. In Jesus' name, don't ever forget you are saved by God's grace. The moment you think you deserve what God is doing in your life, you're in for a fall, and it'll be face first because you need to get right with God. That's God's grace that saved us. That's what verses 30 through 32 tell us. Just like individual Jews today can be saved by that same grace, that's the way you came to faith. It's the way I came to faith. I have believed in the only begotten Son of God, and I'm saved by grace and through faith. I'm not saved because I came to church. I'm not saved because I had some mental epiphany. Wow, I'm now a Christian. No, I'm saved by the mercies of God. His grace poured out upon me 
completely unmerited, undeserved favor by God. That's what saved Jeff Gill. It wasn't because I understood the four spiritual laws. Yes, I did understand them. But God gave me faith to believe that that was true. And then endued me with his grace the moment I believed. Because I surely didn't earn it any more and didn't deserve it any more the moment I said yes to Jesus than I did the week before. Grace is unmerited favor, folks. Never forget it's God's wisdom that we see in this plan. When you think about salvation for the Jews, man. We travel and we go to Yad Vashem, which means a memorial and a name. And you wander through the various exhibitions in, in the halls. You do wonder, God, what, what were you thinking when this was going on? You wander through the children's portion. God, how, how, how could this possibly ever be used by you? And frankly, it's one of the reasons that sometimes Jewish people are very, very difficult to talk to about the grace. Why would God do that? But in his infinite wisdom, he will even redeem the Holocaust. Somehow, that which was intended just as it was in Joseph's life for evil, God preserved some of them alive for that day. A remnant. It's God's wisdom. We dare not question it. Otherwise, you have to question the wisdom of saving you. You have to question the wisdom of his plan of grace for you. When you begin to question God's wisdom, there's no end to questioning his wisdom. So my suggestion, don't question his wisdom. He is all wise. We can't conclude that he doesn't know what he's doing. And never forget that it's God's incomprehensibility. There's a word that's used here. And it's unsearchable. Unfathomable is is the same basic concept. But it was actually a hunting term. And it meant to be untrackable. In other words, God is untrackable. He doesn't leave any sign. He doesn't leave any footprint. He doesn't break any limbs. When he goes somewhere, we don't know exactly where he was, how he got there, what he did when he was there. We simply know he is. Your ways were in the sea. Your paths were in the mighty waters. Your footprints may not be known. The Spirit who searches all things, these, these principles... Even the the very depths of the things of God. You see, these are unsearchable things. We need to make sure we leave God unsearchable. This is a doxology. It's a hymn of praise. It's what that word means, by the way. So when you hear the word doxology, it is praise that's audible. 
you're not going to track God down. You're not going to pin him down. He's, he's not going to fit in your box. You're, you're not going to be able to know everything he does and how he does it. So get over yourself. Seriously. I see so many Christians get messed up because they need an answer to everything that God does. If that's you tonight, let me set you free. You'll never get it. It's not going to happen. God's not going to dial you up and say, this is what I'm doing and this is how I'm doing it. He's going to allow things in your life. You're going to go, I'm, I don't like this, God. He's going to do things that you don't deserve. You're going to go, wow, this is awesome. And everything in between. Let God be God. It's incomprehensive. You, you can't know him fully. So what does all this mean? It means we need to trust him. Because he absolutely has everything under control. He's not going to mess up. He alone is who he is. He alone is God. You know, among us, we get together an abundance of counselors. Counselors is a wonderful thing. There's safety in it. But God doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't need our ideas. You know, when I, when I want to know things, I generally try and seek out other people whom I, I believe are hearing from God, and I'll ask them simple questions and say, this is what's going on. Can you help me discern this? God doesn't need us to do that. He's got a perfect answer every time. And he never fails. He doesn't mess up. You're never going to wake up in the, some morning of your life and go, man, God really blew it on that one. It's not going to happen. You're going to wake up and go, I really blew it in what I thought about what God was doing. That's what's going to happen. I missed it. God didn't miss it. God's only counselor is himself. And he doesn't check in with me every day. He alone is God. Our whole lives and everything about us, it's all about him. Paul would give us a little window into this. John would give us a window into this in Revelation chapter 4. Because one day this is how it's going to go down, folks. The 24 elders would fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. And they will proclaim, Worthy are you, Lord, the Lord our God, to receive all glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Got a little clue for us? We might as well start doing that now. We might as well start living that way now. Lord, to your glory, to your honor, to your praise. For you, because of you, by you. That's why I love the creation accounts. That's why I love what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. That's why Paul would write, in him we have our very being. By him was nothing made that was made. And without him were all things made that were made.
and are made for him. That's why those words are so poignant to us. So to him belongs the glory. Amen. Paul, as he would finish the letter to the church at Corinth, the first one, he said, and then in verse 24 of chapter 15 comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put his enemies under his feet. Jesus has not chosen to put all of his enemies under his feet yet. He is still superior. He could do that at any moment. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the rightful deed holder to the earth. But he has chosen for a little while longer for the age of grace to exist. And so he has allowed to exist what exists. But make no mistake, he is not defeated. He is still the reigning king of the universe. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Aren't you looking forward to that day? I can tell you as a pastor, I've done a lot of memorial services and funerals and grave sites and all of those things. And I've just got to tell you, they always hurt. They always hurt. Because there's always somebody there that doesn't know the Lord. And you see that look on their face like this is, this is the end. And I was trying, and no, it's not the end. It's I'll see you later. It's not I won't see you again. If they knew the Lord. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. There's nothing under Jesus. Jesus is God. And now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be in all. In other words, there's going to be one day when we're going to see the whole picture completely. Glory and honor and praise belongs to our God. Amen? Would you stand and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that these words are not from this earth. They were authored by the Holy Spirit, spoken in the Spirit to the Apostle Paul, and he wrote them down. Your word declares that all Scripture is written by the authority of God. Lord, these words you wrote to us to encourage and strengthen us. You wrote them for us to be encouraged about the future for national Israel. And so as we see that little tiny nation... Lord, you have reminded us that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But we know until that Zechariah 14 event occurs, when you, Jesus, set your feet on the Mount of Olives, and the Prince of Peace will reign, your word says, in the temple on the throne of David. God, we know that time is coming, so there's time yet still for the age of grace to continue. And we love you that that's true, Lord. We thank you that everything is by you, about you, for you, through you. There isn't anything that isn't from you. And so, God, we know that you have all things under control. And we trust you tonight as your people. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor. 
And we give you all the praise. And God's people all set. Amen.